What happens when a Catholic deacon matches wits with a Catholic radio show host? You get a marriage made in heaven. They may not always agree, but they're always faithful. It's the Akins with their view from the pew on Modern Day Radio. And welcome to this episode of View from the Pew. I'm your host, Brenda Aiken, and joining me, as always, is the man who's learning all the back roads of eastern Washington State, the good deacon, Scott Aiken. Yeah, that was quite a journey I had to take in order to get our whole fleet of cars squared away with our kids, because our youngest daughter's car broke down in Ellensburg, and so that uh, that's something I had to go back out and help her pick up. So yeah, I drove out there. It was a 10 hour round trip drive, I think. And you managed to do that all in one day. Here's what I am amazed at is my schedule. I like to lay out very clearly. This is my week. These are the days and times that I have. These are the appointments I have to keep. You, on the other hand, you have that schedule, but you are very good at making a quick change. Whereas I, on the other hand, I'm like, oh, wait a second, I, I, I can't make that change or turn very easily. And then I get, get kind of fluffed up if I have to reschedule people and send emails. You, on the other hand, you're like, done. What do I need to do now to get it there? And you just move everything out of the way. Thank goodness God gives husband and wives different strengths because, yeah, my ability to be adaptive in that way, yeah, not so easy. Yeah, well, that, that's turned out to be a great gift for my diaconate. That's actually one of the strengths that we look for in our diaconal service is to be adaptive because when you're on the altar, you're having to be adaptive in, in the liturgy of the Mass, and and that extends out into the ministry that we we serve because our hours are quite often challenged by virtue of you know family and work, but we manage by God's grace to to get time in that is needed for ministry. It's funny, too, and we notice often in our own lives, too, when one of us gets frustrated, especially when something goes way sideways in the house, the other one of us has the ability to remain cool. It's been rare that something has happened and both of us just flew off the handle. And that because when that happens, then there's no resolution very easily. But if you have a a difficult day and then something goes wrong in the home, I can step in and go, Okay, I've got this. We, you know, no problem. You take a rest, go for a walk, whatever. Let me handle this. Likewise, when I come home and I've been stuck in Portland traffic trying to get back over the bridge and it's taken an hour, I come home, you're right there, ready to step in. It's the way that husband and wives are meant to complement each other. It's supposed to and should hopefully keep peace in your home. No, absolutely. And that's, you know, I, I really feel for people who are single parent households where the, the the parent really is left to their their own abilities to manage some of these really challenging situations that that really benefit from having somebody else who can be there for support and I think that's the that echoes into so much of our societal work that we need to be reliant on others as you know I'm not one who's jumping to be asking for help that's just my Achilles heel that I tend not to ask for help when I should. I'm getting better at that as I, especially as I get older, I recognize, wow, Scott, you have some limitations here, but no, that's, that's, that becomes uh, more apparent with wisdom, but, but really being able to emphasize that in a marriage is, is so critical to echo into society because our children see how we work together, how we lean on each other. 
and thereby, I think as they grow up, they they will be more inclined to do similarly. And Scott, you bring up a great point about those families where there's a, just a single parent. It's our responsibility as a parish and church community to help them where we can also to be able to be that person that they can rely on. Sometimes it might just mean babysitting for a little while so a parent can do something with another child or however we we need to be adaptive and we need to be open and willing to help and step in where we can. Sometimes it might mean if a parent just wants to spend a little time in holy hour. It could be that it uh, let me walk with your child. Let's, I'll, I'll do a little lap around church if you need a moment to pray. You know, Scott, recently the USCCB made an announcement of a Eucharistic revival. And one of the things they talked about in that and that we're going to be focusing on over the next three years is how to regain this awe of being in a holy hour. And if you need that moment in your life where it feels chaotic, to be able to step into the presence with our Lord, calm your mind, calm your heart. Well, you know, we need to regain that awe of Christ in the Eucharist. And we're going to talk about some of those things coming up. I had an opportunity to talk with Father Craig Vosick. Father Vosick is part of this Eucharistic revival. We're going to talk a little bit about the plan that the USCCB has set forward for the Archdiocese parishes and in our own homes. And then we'll share with you just some ideas of how to break down by maybe minute the holy hour that you can spend with the Lord in adoration. So we got a great show ahead for you on this week's View from the Pew. Stay with us. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, County, Monterey, Faraday, Santa Fe, Tallapoosa, Glen Rock, Black Rock, Little Rock, Oskaloosa, Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee, Spirit Lake, Grand Lake, Devil's Lake, Crater Lake, the Beach Lake. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Cross the desert, spare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. In the Bread of Life Discourse, documented in John chapter 6, Jesus states that He is the bread of life, and that His flesh is true food and His blood true drink. The Jews were scandalized in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus does not back down, but reiterates this teaching four more times over the next four verses. Many left in verse 66 because this teaching was truly difficult. But at no point does Jesus water down his teaching and call them back. No, he allows them to leave, and even questions his 12 apostles if they too wish to leave. Jesus intended to be understood literally, and the Jews, apostles, and the Catholic Church absolutely take him at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Time and again, we hear from grateful listeners who tell us their faith lives have been nourished by Mater Day Radio. We hope these wonderful testaments to our spirit-filled broadcast never cease. You can help ensure the future of our broadcast by naming Mater Day Radio as a beneficiary in your will or other forms of estate planning. By leaving a legacy to Mater Day Radio, you are supporting a gospel message of prayer and hope heard by thousands of listeners every day. Learn more about our estate planning options at materdayradio.com. Family life can be hectic, but God can be found right in the middle of it. 
So take a moment for this week's View from the Pew. Well, it was a startling revelation when it was learned that two-thirds of U.S. Catholics do not believe in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, it spurred on the USCCB to begin a three-year Eucharistic revival. The mission of the National Eucharistic Revival is to renew the church by enkindling a living relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Now, it launched on Corpus Christi Sunday this past June, and joining me today is Father Craig Vosick. Father Vosick is a member of the National Eucharistic Preachers. They are a group of clergy commissioned to preach at events across the country in an effort to awaken a desire among the faithful to encounter Jesus in the Eucharist. Father Vosick is joining me today. Good morning, Father. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Brenda, so good to be with you. Father Vosick, we know the phrase that the Eucharist, it is the source and the summit of our faith. But what does that statistic tell us about our belief in the Eucharist? I mean, have Catholics just become a little apathetic about the Eucharist and the importance of Christ in our lives? Or are we not being catechized well? Yeah, well, I don't think there's uh, one quick answer to all of it. Um, the, The fact is that uh, in every age, uh, we have a confrontation with faith. Um, even in the life of Jesus himself, there were those who received his message, and there were those who did not receive his message, or or received his message in a way that was not consonant with what, <laughs> with what the message was that he was trying to share. So um, what we find, uh, the stats are, are alarming, uh, they're difficult, and I think the the cause of them can be uh, one of any number of things. For one person, it might be that uh, it just seems too hard to believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. For another, they might think that um, it simply has to be a symbol because other Christian churches say it's a symbol. Um, and for other people, they might uh, be experiencing pain in their life that uh, kind of overwhelms their own um, desire or capacity to to move in a direction of faith. So I think that there is a whole host of uh, things that could have contributed to this uh, quite alarming statistic. Father Vasek, maybe we could just do a quick lesson for those who are listening today. So when we say that the Eucharist is the true presence of Christ, what does that mean? The host and the wine turns into the body and blood of Jesus symbolically represented? Uh, is he there both as bread and then it's also Jesus? I mean, it, it can be hard to define what the source in the summit is. What right. can you tell us? Yeah, so I think it's important, and I, I don't want to do an entire lesson, but I think it's important to start at the very beginning, um, because uh, if we believe that Jesus is truly present in the body and blood uh, in the Eucharist, but we don't believe who Jesus is, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, so I think we have to kind of go all the way back, and I won't belabor the point, but um, Jesus declares that he is co-eternal with his Father. He is uh, He has been sent from his Father, and he is united with his Father. And so uh, Jesus is divine. Um, he's not merely a man. He has a human nature. But he is not merely a man. He is co-eternal with the Father. He is God. And uh, so, But even that 
doesn't really matter if we don't believe that there is a God, you know, so I'm not going to go all the way back with all of that, but we believe that there is a God, and we believe that one of those persons in God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, took on human nature, took on flesh and blood, and this is what we believe about Jesus. So I think even before we talk about who is present in the Eucharist, we have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the divine Son of the Father, and we first have to make that act of faith, because otherwise it's really irrelevant who's present, what's present, what elements are present, if if uh, it's it's all pretend. And he is, it's not pretend. Jesus is truly um, God made man incarnate in uh, in the incarnation. So that's the first thing. But then after, once we come to believe that he is the divine son of God, then we want to take him at his word. And um, I think in kind of an easy, easy way to articulate the truth is to articulate what the not truth is, because it then it kind of hones us in. And uh, Jesus at the last supper does not say, um, take this all of you and eat of it. This bread uh, represents my body or this wine represents mm-hmm. my blood. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. He doesn't even say, take this bread and eat it. This is my body. He doesn't even say this is bread anymore. He doesn't even say this is wine. He doesn't say anything about that. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. So I think that's uh, the first thing to say, um, and we can go deeper, I think, after that into how we should understand it. Well, going deeper, that is part of this Eucharistic revival. USCCB bishops have launched, and it began this past June, and now this revival, well, its aim is to reach across every part of the United States. Father Craig Vosick is joining me today. He's part of the team that set out to preach. All right, Father, well, this revival has started just this past June, and it's going to go on all the way to a culmination of this national conference. So what are we supposed to do during these few years? Can you give us an overview of what the National Eucharistic Revival is? Sure. It's very, very exciting. Uh, So this past June, it began in Corpus Christi of June 2022, where um, the revival begins. And what we're calling that is the diocesan year. And so the the revival, the Eucharistic revival, is reaching out to leaders across the country, and that in particular reaching out to bishops, archbishops, cardinals of the church, uh, their diocesan offices, to uh, share with them the vision for them to get clarity on uh, how they might participate in that locally in their own place um, so that they can build up a grassroots movement where they are. And that's very important. We are not doing some sort of um, top-down programmatic launch. We are doing some things from the national level, but our hope is that the Lord would inspire local places, so diocese and then down to the parish and then down to the family and down to the individual unit, right, uh, to respond to what the Lord wants to do, which is to spread the faith uh, of Jesus Christ and His sacramental truths to us throughout the world. So it began in June of 2022, and what we're working with is diocese and uh, diocesan leadership to, to help them 
plot a course for themselves, one that works for them. And so there's plenty of dioceses that are doing that. They're having diocesan events. They're having regional events. They're having multi-parish events, different things like this. Um, so we're, we're delighted to see that happening all across the country. And in the meantime, a lot of other people are saying, well, I'm not waiting uh, to do something. So we're seeing all sorts of apostolates, movements, and organizations, and others that are really keying in already, which is really, really beautiful. But what we're focusing on from the national level is the diocesan leadership right now and starting to reach out to priests. Then beginning uh, next June on Corpus Christi, um, we will launch into what we're calling the parish year. And so this is where we're hoping that every parish uh, in the United States of America, if they can, uh, so that's like 17,000 parishes throughout yeah. the country, that they would host all sorts of things that they find to be what the Lord is blessing them to do during that time. So it might be uh, a parish mission. It might be uh, some sort of Eucharistic devotion. It might be some sort of outreach to those who are disaffiliated or unaffiliated to invite them to experience uh, the Lord uh, at Holy Mass. It could be it could be small group uh, gatherings. We're going to be pushing that actually quite a bit. Uh, small group gatherings to to build up the life of faith in those local areas. So that's the what we're calling the parish year. So if you haven't seen anything in your parish yet, it might be because your parish is still planning to get ready to do something in that parish year of 2023 uh, to June of 2024. So that's the, the second year, and then it'll culminate, as you mentioned. In a way, it'll culminate. It'll culminate in um, July of 2024. Uh, a national Eucharistic Congress. We're hoping 80,000 plus, 100,000 plus people come from all over the country to Indianapolis from July 17th to July 21st uh, for a, an incredible manifestation of our Catholic faith and our belief in the in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, from yeah, from all over the country. We used to have these quite a bit in the United States every number of years. We haven't had one for, I think it's 50 years, something like wow. this. So it'll be the first, it'll be historic in a way that way. But we're hoping that it doesn't end there. We're hoping that we would then have Congresses, every national Congresses every number of years, you know, five years, seven years, whatever it might be. Um, so that's going to be a culminating point for the sort of organizational revival. But the hope, since it is a grassroots movement, that this would be kindling fires in local places that would actually begin at the Congress. It would be a new beginning of a of an of a outreach and a missionary sending. This is what we're calling it. A missionary sending of Eucharistic missionaries from the Congress all throughout the country to continue this work of revival, uh, not just not just for a few years, but for the rest of human history in the United States of America. And we hope that this becomes a benchmark moment to send out thousands, tens of thousands of people who will kindle Eucharistic love in their local place. Oh, Father Vasek, you've got me excited. Count me in. I will be there 2024. Father Craig Vasek is joining me today. He's part of the commission working on this National Eucharistic Revival. Well, you talked about some of the things about what the archdiocese and diocese can do, and then it's going to filter into what parishes can do. Can you maybe share with us something that, you know, just for right now, as we're waiting for these larger events to be organized and formed in our archdiocese and then in our churches, what can families do right now to begin this process to revive their belief and then share it with their children? Uh, absolutely. We should be doing this anyway. So, yeah, don't wait for someone else to tell you to do it. Um, that's actually been something that people have asked me, like, well, I heard that there's a revival, but then I wasn't told what I was supposed to do. And so to that question, 
or to that point, um, I just point back to them and say, well, what do you want to do? What do you sense the Lord is prompting you to do? If it's going to be grassroots and it's going to be from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then, then each person needs to just pause and turn to the Lord and seek His Holy Spirit and say, Lord, what, what have you made me for during this time? What can I do right now? And the answer can't be given by me over the phone with you. The answer has to come from the Lord as He is engaging every single human heart, right? So we, we are offering this diocesan playbook. We have four different areas where we think people could start to look. Uh, one would be personal encounter with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, praying before the tabernacle, going to Holy Mass, participating in, in penance uh, so as to arrive at the Eucharistic table in a state of grace. Okay, absolutely. Uh, second place, reinvigorating devotion uh, in the different ways that we can with regard to our love of Jesus. Third, to deepen our formation, so to learn what does the Church teach, and then to preach that to others that we find. And then finally, a missionary sending to go out and to bear Jesus in the world to my to my family, to my coworkers, to the people that I see, to anyone that I might find. That is Father Craig Vosick joining us today. We're talking about this three-year Eucharistic revival. It has begun. Thank you so much, Father. But if I want this world around to change, I can't stay the same. Something has to break. I need revival deep in my soul That holy thunder shaking my bones Well, talking with our holy priests like Father Vosick, it really reminds me how important the Eucharist is, as we always say, the source and the summit of our faith, and yet at the same time, how it's possible to take for granted that we have access so easily to Christ in the Eucharist and that it's important to always remain in awe of what we are receiving and the gift that Christ gives to us, you know, by being able to have him in the Eucharist. You spent many an early hour morning in Eucharistic adoration. Uh, and I find that amazing. When I go to Eucharistic adoration, when I started doing that, my mind would wander. How do you do those early morning hours when you would go to adoration? Yeah, you know, I think the um, first few minutes, it does take, even though it's morning time, it takes time to calm yourself once again, because you've gotten up to get there and you're kneeling before the sacrament and you're trying to focus on what you see. And that's the first challenge, I think, for the faithful is, as the church refers to the Eucharist, we see the accident, which is the church's terminology for seeing the host. Mm -hmm. You still see the bread as it was created by maybe sisters who have worked on that or monks who may have worked on that, somebody that we've purchased this item from in order to bring to mass and the priest then transubstantiate into the body of Christ. That is the root of our faith. That is the uh, energy that drives uh, the Catholic Church in the focus of recognizing it as the source and summit. And we see that every time at Mass, but in the Blessed Sacrament during adoration, there's, there's an opportunity in the quiet to be removed from the world's worries if we allow ourselves to be. So I think one of the first things that we do is we try to grow into the practice of adoration is recognizing that we need to be mindful of the fact that we're like children beginning the process. Mm 
Scott, hearing you talk about that, it makes me yearn to be more in that time of presence. And my mind, that ordered mind that I I like to kind of keep things ordered in minutes, I feel like it's got to be the checklist, minutes by minutes by minutes. But Mm -hmm. if you're just starting out, sometimes having that order helps you get through the hour. And then slowly, as you said, the more times that you attend a holy hour, well, then it just flows into this natural visit with our Lord. Yes, um, it. I grew into that. And again, to give people encouragement that it's not something you can just go in and it just happens. It's not our human nature. Our human nature requires uh, effort uh, of training, of, of guidance, of wisdom. And all of that comes with practice. And so the saints will attest to that constantly. But in the practice of adoration, to go through a process is helpful. For the, for the mind to slow down and to connect. But when that becomes more natural, like our marriage over the years, where we can come into a situation and we can slow down quickly, more quickly than we could when we were first married 33 years ago, to recognize the other and to see and to, and to sense, my goodness, you're, you're troubled or you're so happy. What happened? We can recognize emotions that we might otherwise miss. And so when you're in the practice of adoration, there is walking through this process initially, but then there's a it grows into a relationship that you can be mindful of. Okay, God, what is the will of the Father for me to do this week? Who who should I bring to mind to pray for? And pretty soon there will be images and, and, and ideas of, oh, this person. I haven't thought of that person in a while. Why did I think of that person? Well, I tell you right now, it's not happenstance. It's not by chance. It is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through your relationship and love with Christ in the moment. And soon images and thoughts will come to mind of people you should pray for, things you should pray for. And that petition process that comes towards the end of that will be so fruitful. And it doesn't happen every time. And I I think that's we need to be honest about that. We ebb and flow in our faith. And St. Paul was one to attest to that so greatly, uh, most recently in in the readings from this last Sunday, that he's, he's finished the race. He's won the imperishable crown, but he's saying that in light of the fact that it has been a challenge to get there as it is for all of us, but take that time, be patient, be merciful with yourself and be open to the beauty that God wants to share with you about his love for you. Scott, before we go, will you end us in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your very presence in the Eucharist, the opportunity to spend time in a place that separates us from the troubles of the world for the moment. But as you told St. Peter to come down off the mountain, back into the valley, help us to recognize that when we're in adoration, it's an opportunity for us to see you in many ways transfigured in the Eucharist, but that you call us to go back out into community. Help us to do that with faith, hope, and love, and the promise that you are with us always. In your name we pray, in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is going to wrap it up for us this week. Please tune in next week as we share with you more stories about our faith, our family, and our view from the pew. God bless and have a wonderful adoration. You've been listening to View from the Pew, a weekly look at faith and family life from a Catholic perspective with Deacon Scott and Brenda Aiken. For more information on the Aikens and to listen to an archive of their previous shows, visit them online at moderndayradio.com slash pew. 
View from the View is produced at the studios of Monterey Radio in Portland, Oregon.